Tales Internal Monologue. In this episode, we're going to be discussing the Babylon 5 Season 3 episode, The Point of No Return. Uh, and this is the episode of which the season takes its subtitle. I've explained this before, but I'll do a brief recap. Basically, each season of Babylon 5 is structured like the five uh, acts of a novel, and, uh, and basically uh, each, each season had its own subtitle, um, that, uh, that, that was indicative of the things that were going to happen in that season, and that subtitle would also be the title of an episode within said season. Season three was The Point of No Return. Uh, and this episode is massive. I, I said last time, you know, we have a three-episode arc coming up, uh, and th this is, this is the midway point of that arc. Um, you know, nothing is going to be the same after this. Uh, this is a real game changer, and it, it makes repeated points to really hammer in. No, this is not going to be a once and you know we're done. You know, solve the situation. You know, return to the status quo thing. No, 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 no. The show is going to change. Everything has to change. Um, you know, a status quo in a story is there to be broken. And this is the ultimate status quo breaker. We haven't gotten to the big, big one. That's next episode. And I'm forewarning you, I'm not putting that in the, the you know, spoiler, uh, spoiler warnings. You know, next episode is the big, big, big one. The big status quo breaker. But right here, we have the beginnings of a real big uh, status quo change. Um, so I want to talk about the Lady Morella stuff first, because obviously the Nightwatch stuff is far more grand and more important overall in the story. Um, so behind the scenes, it's worth mentioning, I, I, I've been thinking about how to address this, and I think I may have in previous episodes uh, briefly touched upon the um, Babylon 5 and Star Trek Deep Space Nine controversy. I don't really consider it a controversy, um, but many people do, and I still see the, the you know this kind of mindset. I don't really understand it, so I. It's important to note that in behind the scenes, the show of Babylon Five and the show of Deep Space Nine started roughly around the same time. They had very similar premises. Uh, characters even shared names. And they ultimately went their own separate ways. Uh, and uh, there's more detail on exactly what was going on uh, if you read the Becoming, uh, Becoming Superman, uh, JMS's own autobiography, where his wife was working on TNG, uh, and uh, she she ended up uh, in in a planning she ended up in a planning meeting for DS9. Uh, and basically, he had pitched Babylon 5 to CBS, they had denied it, and apparently, allegedly, we don't know exactly everything that went on, one of the executives, or a couple of the executives, liked the idea enough, but wanted to refine it and change it uh, to Star Trek, and uh, it passed hands and hands and hands, and eventually ended up on the desks of Michael Piller, uh, and, uh, and Rick Berman and all the people in charge of Star Trek at the time. Uh, by At that point, it had been changed so much that the premise was very different. Um, and, and basically, 
everybody kind of knew potentially once again this is all he said she said of uh you know everybody kind of knew it was a stolen idea but they didn't know exactly where it was stolen from and none of the writers intended it maliciously the writers were handed a project and they wrote you know that, that that's how this kind of thing works it was never a malicious thing um on the on the behalf of the executives it could have been once again all we have is hearsay uh and basically this had caused a big rivalry between the two shows uh to the point that it apparently allegedly i wasn't alive at the time uh that during the 90s there was a big you know you're either a babylon 5 fan or you're a deep space 9 fan you can't be a fan of both you know that classic stupid argument that i talk i've talked about before hell it's even that entire argument is mocked in this very show uh re remember uh you know uh green purple that entire thing uh, it's the Marvel versus DC. It's the iPod versus Android. It, it's the whatever versus the whatever. It doesn't really matter. Insert any name you want. It's a stupid ass argument. It has no basis in reality, and it's only because you you want to feel like you belong, so you attack the other side simply because they're not on your side. That's, that's not at all a good you know good ground to stand on. Personal opinion. Um, so nowadays. Um, Babylon 5 is kind of, you know, sadly, despite all it did and how it changed TV forever, kind of is relegated to, uh, obscurity in sci-fi television. And most people know DS9. And anybody who's watched Babylon 5 usually has already watched DS9 or will be watching DS9 and tends to like both. There is still, still animosity, usually among older members of the fandom, uh, that do not have the same, uh, you know, uncaringness that I do as far as, you know, tribal and team mentality and therefore only like one or only like the other, you know, kind of thing. Uh, you'll find it on like comment threads on Reddit occasionally or Twitter or whatever of, uh, you know, this, you know, DS9 stole this from BAP5 or blah, blah, blah. You can only watch one, which is complete bullshit. I have watched both shows. I love both shows to death. They're, uh, both of them are in my top five TV shows of all time, but they're very different. They're so very different, and anybody that says they're so similar only knows what's been told to them. Because if you watch them back-to-back, they're virtually different shows. Outside of very surface-level concepts, like they both exist on a space station, you know, um, they're very different. Sure, there's like some weirdness with some characters sharing names or certain... Uh, you know, plot details or certain character motivations. But at the end of the day, does it really matter? The writers went a different way than JMS. Entirely different. The the uh, the commentary and the, the, the thematic ideas of Babylon 5 and the commentary and the thematic ideas of DS9 are different. Entirely different. And their characters are so well fleshed out that I can't even tell you what character is what character. Because, you know, if, if anything, 
you know, you, you could say, oh, Babylon 5 ripped this off because it has, you know, it has the, you know, the sheriff and it has the, the, the town mayor, uh, you know, it's just called security, you know, you know, a security captain and captain, you know, whatever. It, at the end of the day, it's only surface level similarities. Um, and there, that's, that's, that's that in regards to DS9 and Babylon 5. And JMS and Major Barrett, uh, basically were uh, behind the scenes friends and uh, Major Barrett reached out to JMS um, and it's worth noting uh, if the those who are not in the know Major Barrett was at the time the widow of Gene Ronberry uh, she had been his uh, one of his wives anyway uh, you know his his most recent wife in the I think his longest running wife I think um, uh, and uh, he had passed away and she was kind of like the figurehead in terms of uh, keeping the brand alive for his name and, you know, Star Trek and all that stuff. And so it was kind of an extend the olive branch kind of gesture. And it's really sweet of her uh, to ask JMS, hey, I would like to appear on Babylon 5 and play a character and just kind of show that these two IPs, these two intellectual properties, can coexist. I mean, you know, Star Trek is all about peaceful coexistence, and at the heart of it, so is Babylon 5. So, you know, why not appeal to these fan bases and say, get over yourselves, basically? And so, uh, Mitchell Barrett plays Lady Morella. I thought it was a really sweet gesture of her. I always like Major Barrett. Uh, I think she's an amazing actress. Um, you know, uh, I've mo mainly seen her in Star Trek stuff, mainly because I'm a big Trekkie. Uh, but I've seen her in a few other things. She's really good. Uh, always, always a good actress. Um, and she brings her all here to Lady Morella. Uh, and what's interesting is that there's some interesting meta-commentary in the fact that she is playing the Widow of the emperor of the Centauri Republic. So she is, in fact, the widow of a great man. Uh, and that, and she is presumed to speak with the voice of her dead husband, much like the real-life Major Barrett is the widow of a great man named Jean Ronberry, and she is presumed to speak with his voice because now she is basically the, the, the figurehead of... Uh, of Star Trek, to, to which her husband created. Um, so it's a very interesting meta-commentary. Um, but her side of the plot with Londo um, is uh, is interesting with of itself, because Londo is scared um, about his future. Um, we've seen that the Centauri, certain Centauri have the ability to see the future, and we know that the Centauris can see the moment of their death when they go to sleep. Uh, and so he wants to find a uh, a prophetess that will tell him about his future, and and is for it specifically so that he can confirm uh, that his future is not what he foresees, because what he foresees is nothing but darkness, as we well know. Uh, and sadly, she does not confirm that at all. Uh, you know, she confirms something much darker than we were expecting. Um, but first, uh, uh, I, I do want to talk about um, 
you know, she she's got some really good moments in here, and I like how she's being shown the 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 station as it all goes to hell. There's something just comedic about that that I really liked, but also um, her speech about greatness and how we as a society shun greatness and and how we have to and, and, and you know how how it's uh you know constantly redefined over the courses of our lives and then re-examined uh, uh once we are dead um that that there's no such thing as greatness while you're living there's only greatness after they're gone um that that hits home you know that there's something to be said there um but um so the big point of her story is the uh, is the uh, uh, is the prediction she gives Londo and Veer. So uh, I can finally say Londo is destined to become emperor. We kind of saw that previously uh, with him being crowned uh, in a vision uh, back in the Coming of Shadows, uh, but now it is uh, official. He's definitely going to become emperor, and so is Veer. Uh, and, and I like how Veer laughs at that because he assumes he's nothing but a joke. Why would he be emperor? And she's like, you, you don't, we don't laugh in the name of prophecy, you know? Uh, and you know, you, one of you will be emperor when the other is dead. And that leads to a hilarious comedic moment where, you know, the all order in, uh, that is actually really funny. But, uh, the, the big the big thing beyond the fact that they are both destined to be emperor is the pass of Londo's redemption. I've been talking about that this is Londo's redemption arc. Uh, you know, Londo is on on trying anyway to uh, redeem himself. He has made steps to further himself from uh, from the the new blood in the Centaurum. He's made, uh, made a pass of trying to distance himself from Mr. Morden and all, all, of, all of the baggage that comes from everything he's, he has done over the past two seasons. And this is what Lady Morella tells him. You must save the eye that does not see. You must not kill the one who is already dead. And, and at the last, you must surrender yourself to your greatest fear, knowing it will destroy you. And this prophecy, I'm not going to say anything. I'm, I, I'll probably say that for a brief, very brief spoiler section at the very end, just to give my viewpoints on it. But what I love about this is that this works the way prophecy should work in fiction. Uh, you know, we inherently any kind of uh, prophetic thing or uh, religious text comes a, or, or even older history comes with the idea that there's glorification, that there is, uh, you have to read in between the lines because uh, you're not sure if what they're saying is true. And in a prophecy's case, uh, prophecies tend to be so vague as to ensure that they can come true no matter what. Uh, and in this case, the prophecy is specific enough and yet vague enough that me, with future knowledge of the show, can actually pinpoint various different points in the story in which this that the, each one of these three sentences, these three chances of redemption for Londo, can be put in. And I like that, uh, because prophecy inherently is all about being open-ended and, and sort of... Uh, 
having multiple meanings. Probably my my favorite example of this is uh, uh, is Athena's prophecy in the Witcher franchise, um, uh, specifically the Witcher saga as written by Andrei uh, Andrei uh, the those books go out of their way to explain the different interpretation that everybody has from the common peasant to royals to the different races to historians to sorceresses uh, to kings you know and uh, and, and to you know different dimensional beings and within that we get hints about what what things will be in different ways we can understand how they would get to that interpretation and each one of them is valid until they're not uh and the way that series ends is in a very particular way to make sure that almost everything is valid uh and that destiny can go fuck itself but that is the moral of the witcher i'm not going to get into that i may do like a witcher thing sometime later on because it is one of my favorite franchises um but i just love how that entire uh situation can be read multiple ways it's it's just very nice and very thoughtful of jms uh and i will get into the spoiler section uh what i think each one of them means for me um in, in my personal interpretation of the prophecy uh, so now we get to the big important stuff of this episode. The Night Watch takes over. So, um, you know, uh, that basically the um, martial law was declared at the very end of the uh, end of the uh, last episode, uh, and it's in full effect now. Uh, Babylon Five is about to go under it. Uh, Night Watch has been. Uh, basically, they have put Nightwatch in uh, in control security, uh, and you ha and you you're, you're given a choice of either join Nightwatch or quit, uh, and uh, and it's scary to see how many people we see actively join the Nightwatch out of out of fear. Uh, it's important, I mean, to remember that uh, the Nightwatch are effectively the Nazis, uh, but you can see this throughout various points in history of various uh you know uh organizations doing this uh they can get perfectly innocent people to go their way by weaponizing fear uh if you're not if you're not with us you're against us which means we can bring the full power of our might on you so some people fearing for their lives their families lives you know uh, their jobs what have you will go and pull what they view as the lesser evil uh, in order to protect their families or protect themselves or protect their jobs or what have you. Um, it's a scary position to be in. And, and think about that. Like, we only saw, what, one or two people in that lineup, uh, you know, out of the security people actively put back their guns and, you know, give up their badges and quit. You know, think about how many people turned like, just like that, just as, you know, quickly as flipping on a light switch because they it, fear was weaponized against them and they had no choice and you can tell zach is getting more and more um concerned with the situation he has become fully against the night watch you know he, you know he's questioning them he's getting aggressive with them and at the end of the episode when they pull the big uh you know uh you know uh you know, coup against the Nightwatch effectively, um, you know, he rips that armband off like he couldn't wait to get it off. And finally, 
if you the, the metaphor of the 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 uh, uniform not fitting his uniform finally fits no 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 he no longer has that armband because uh, he's now comfortable because uh, the night watch was making him incredibly uncomfortable with their ever increasing decisions and um they they're effectively the secret police they're the Gestapo now they're, they're, they're they are effectively you know officially licensed people who can just go beat up people for all they want you know they, they have no more restrictions um and the and there's this entire idea about that armband that uh it's just a piece of cloth it means that that it means nothing there, there's that great scene between zach and garibaldi where you know zach is going to garibaldi before garibaldi bursts in causes a scene in security and Zach is, you know, basically saying, you know, j just just go with it. I don't like it either, but please just go with it. Just go with it. And that's all about compromise and collaboration. And Groundbaldi is not having any of it. You know, it's, you know, th this is wrong. You know, you shouldn't have to do this. You know, and you, and you better step back, son, because, you know, hell's coming right behind me. Um, and it, basically... Um, the idea is that if you take the idea of patriotism uh, and you think about how much people, uh, how much belief and ideas people put on a simple piece of cloth that weaves on a flagpole, and you think about that from a sort of iconic, iconic level of this means something, you know, I'm, you know, you put on a, here, here's a good example, you put on a Superman shirt, you know, a shirt with the, 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 the crest of the House of L, you know, um, and that means something, it means something to a lot of people, including me, of, you know, it, you know, it means hope, it, it, you know, it means, uh, you know, you, you need to do the right thing. You should stand up for people who can't stand up for themselves. You know, you should be asking yourself what would Clark Kent do? Um, you know, al always be good. You know, always be fair. And you take that and you wear an icon that is completely abhorrent to you. Think about that for a second. Wearing, you know, a swastika or something like that. That, 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 that would be... It'd be like, you know, uh, to, to quote Sheridan after he reads the, the martial law decree, I gotta take a shower, you know? It's like you, it's like there's this layer of filth that you can't scrub off. Uh, because we, we as humans attach meanings to the, the, the most minute detail. Um, and icons are a thing. Uh, thinking about things on the iconic level. Uh, and... You know, the Nightwatch symbol has become a symbol of hatred and horribleness to Garibaldi. So the entire idea of just collaborating and going along with it is abhorrent to him. And I agree. Uh, and I love that speech he gives where it's like, you know, it's, it, you know, it, it's always us. You know, who is us? You know, uh, it, it's always someone else. You know, it's always someone else's fault. It's us versus them. You know, uh, there's always this division, and I, I love how he just breaks down the Night Watch's arguments just like that. And he goes, No, 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 this is stupid, this is idiotic. Now, listen to me, I'm your friend, I was your superior officer, I dealt with you like a human being. Now, deal with me on a human being level, don't hide behind ideologies and you know, stupid, 
you know, stupid rhetoric and listen. Uh, and it's, it's a powerful scene. It's a great scene. Uh, everything to do with what Garibaldi did this uh, this episode, very, very powerful. Uh, Jerry Doyle acts the hell out of it. Uh, just fantastic stuff. Um, and I like, I like how, um, the, you know, the, the situation back on earth is we don't see it, but we see it kind of thing. Basically, we don't get to experience it because we have no characters on earth, but we get to hear it through news broadcasts and it almost creates this, uh, relatability almost, uh, to the characters and the fact that we are watching the TV, we are watching Babylon 5 on the TV, and we are getting relayed this information. And the characters have to watch their own TV and uh, get relayed the information via ASN. So they have no more information than we do, and it feels impactful because it feels so far away and yet so close to home. Uh, I think it's the best way to explain it, that these problems are boiling up to the surface, and this means, you know, you know, hell is coming, but, uh, you know, it, it feels like it's a distant memory, you know, Earth is so far away, and yet it's eventually going to catch up to them, and it does catch up to them when martial law, uh, the, the martial law decree is brought to Babylon 5, and Sheridan has to state it, which, as I mentioned before, I like how Lady Morella is being shown around the station, uh, and then all hell breaks loose, and no one gets to hear Sheridan's speech because no one's paying attention. Uh, and I, I just like that because that, that is just symbolic of, you know, shit has hit the fan. Uh, and, you know, nothing's going to be the same after this. This is, this is massive. This is important. And it just, it, it, it's, like, it's like opening up a can, you know, that instant release of air. Just... <laughs> Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's chaos bubbling up to the surface. You know, it's, this is big. Um, and I love that, um, everything that is done, uh, is done through legal means. Uh, I've talked about before how Babylon 5 is very good at acknowledging what a soldier's job should be on the fact that a soldier is not passive. You do not hand a soldier and gun, a gun and say, go kill. A soldier's job is to analyze their orders, make sure that it is legal and good and right before they go and kill that person. They don't just go and fire blindly. That is not the job of a soldier. And, uh, and I've talked about before how Sheridan, uh, you know, looks at a situation and analyzes it from every angle he can. And the 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 chain of command thing, well, I think it was a bit on the nose with having that, you know, the the message repeated multiple times of, uh, you know, the, it came from the political office and it, the chain of command repeated, what, two or three times? I was like, I get it. I, I understand the, the symbolism. I understand what he was saying, that, that he was on an unsecure channel and he knew he's being monitored. So he was trying to slip a message through. I get it. I get it. I'm not stupid. But I do like how uh, Sheridan uses that against them and goes, no, the you know until this this these orders are reissued, this this order came from the political office. So therefore, you know civilians can't tell me what to do. The end of the end of the story, and he solves the issue 
or at least delays the issue via their own laws so they can't fight him. Uh, and it's important to note this is all temporary, and he knows it. Uh, uh, you know, th 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 this is only, you know, going to delay the inevitable. It is not going to stop it entirely. This is, this is putting a bandage on the wound. It doesn't stop the bleeding, but it helps begin the clotting, you know, for the, you know, the blood to scab over. Uh, so it, it, it's, it's, it's a start. It's better than nothing. Uh, and then, of course, uh, uh, because a large majority of the security force joined the Night Watch, the Narns are now part of the security. So that that's an interesting deal. Even even Franklin makes a joke. Oh, Lando's gonna love this because now half the security force is Narn, uh, and it's worth noting. There's even that great scene. It's just very short, like thirty seconds, if not less, where Lady Morella gets into a you know lift, and there's just a Narn security guard. And she seems a bit uncomfortable. Uh, in the, it, it, you know, it's it, it's very nice moment, and it's worth it's worth mentioning that Jacquard was released from his sentence early. Um, you can read into that multiple ways. Um, you know, Garibaldi makes the excuse of we need everybody man uh, on, on you know on uh, on staff, and basically during this crisis, uh, so I need you out of here. I can't have men wasting their time uh, guarding you. But I think. Garibaldi is smart enough to know that the Night Watch was going to attempt to take over at some point. He knew a large majority of his members were already members. Uh, and uh, he was trying to get the alien out of the hands of the racists. Personal opinion, they are friends. And I and I would like to think that's what Garibaldi was also trying to do. Uh, and and I, I like how um, throughout this entire... Throughout this entire episode, Sheridan is just disgusted. First, he has to read the martial law speech, which he disagrees with. He's watching his home get shattered. Uh, you know, uh, senators are being fired upon by the military. The entire uh, situation, the, the person who who sort of began the conspiracy of the light, General Haig, is now opening fire. Uh, so, uh, you know, on, on Clark's forces and is now on the run and, you know, situations are getting worse and he just feels disgusted and there's no better, you know, like I mentioned earlier, I just needed to shower, you know, uh, after he reads that, that, that speech and he scrumbles it and he throws it, you could just feel that anger. Bruce Boxliner acts the hell out of it. It's great. It's so relatable because I would be the same way. I would feel horrible and disgusted with myself if I had to read such a thing um and uh it's it's worth noting you know that the the one half of the general Haig situation that's mentioned several times here uh as even in the ending where you know it during the big fight uh, you know, where Sheridan announces things, it looks like General Hag may be winning. And I, like I mentioned, this is the big status quo changer that, uh, you know, things, you know, are, are, are never going to be the same on this show that, um, General Haig, you know, you would think in a normal TV show anyway, General Haig would, you know, knock out Clark. We'd go back to status quo. Everything's hunky dory after a couple episodes. Not Babylon 5. That's not how Babylon 5 operates. Because at the end of this episode, after repeated questions of where is General Heck, we find out that General Heck's side, they may have won one battle, but they're now, they, they've now lost several ships. It's just themselves. They're on the run. 
they're badly damaged, likelihood they're not going to make it. It gets haunting at that very end where Sheridan and Vonover are talking, like, you know, sooner or later they're going to come after us. I never thought it would end this way. You know, it, it's chilling. Uh, so it's sort of like that. Um, the very end of the, I think it was the second episode uh, of uh, of season two, uh, where uh, um, where uh, Jack, the um, uh, the Psychor agent that shot Garibaldi, was uh, was mysteriously transferred to another uh, uh, to another ship, and, and Shadow says it gets it gets rather cold up here, doesn't it, Commander? Uh, I'm reminded of that. Because it's it rather cold and lonely in space. And Babylon 5 is on its own. It's going to have to survive. Who knows how that's going to go down. So now I want to go to a brief spoiler section. Uh, mainly because this arc is not over. There's a lot th that's going to go on. Especially next episode that I could talk about. But um, you know I made mention last time. That you know I, I was yelling at my TV. When I first watched this. Declare independence. Declare independence. And that was more so in this episode. When shit really hits the fan. I'm like declare independence. Declare independence. Well next episode. But anyway. Uh, the big thing in the spoiler section. I need to talk about. Is the prophecy. So I'm going to quote the prophecy again. You must save the eyes that uh, that does not see. You must uh, not kill the one who is already dead. And at the last, you must surrender yourself to your greatest fear, knowing it will destroy you. So my reading of it, I think, is the more common reading of the 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 uh, prophecy. Uh, you must save the uh, the eye that does not see. That's Jakar's eye. Uh, that he will lose in season four. Cartesia will cut it out. Uh, you uh, you must not kill the one who is already dead. Um, that I believe that is Sheridan, uh, specifically in the sequence that we see in the War Without End and in the beginning, and when Londo is Emperor, uh, and uh, he he has the option to kill Sheridan, and Sheridan's, uh, you know, Sheridan's mind from the past is in Sheridan's body of the future, so that he can find out what is going on in War Without End. We're gonna get to that soon. That's this season. Um, time traveling shenanigans, uh, and then at the last, you must surrender yourself uh, to your greatest fear, knowing they will destroy you. You must uh, surrender yourself to Dakar and apologize for all your mistakes, and he will die, strangling him, much like he saw in his dreams, as mentioned all the way back in Midnight on the Firing Line. Other other readings um, is usually um uh you it, the most i've the most i've seen that has the most clear evidence as a potential reading uh is you you must not kill the one who's already dead morden mr morden is technically already dead uh and then he gets redeaded uh, that's a term uh, officially kyle branded term of uh you know with the nuclear thing you know the nuclear explosion um, on Zaha Doom at the end of season three, uh, and he has to like regrow his skin. Um, you know he gets reconstituted and, and all that jazz. Um, and, and of course, you know, <laughs> Londo cuts off his head and puts it on a pike. <laughs> um, you know, I could see that as a as an argument for a way for it to be read. Um, but I personally read it as Sheridan. Um, I'm, I'm not quite sure of other readings. Um, I'm sure there are 
Uh, those are the ones I've mainly seen, and my personal reading is probably the most common one I've seen spouted. I'm sure there's other ones. Um, it's not coming to my mind currently at the moment for other possible readings, but the Morden Sheridan switcheroo for the second one is the one that I see most often in discussions. Um, I can go either way. Um, I see evidence for both, but personally I think, uh, you know, him not, you know, especially under the influence of the Keeper, you know, Morden's death was a personal choice out of vengeance, out of pure blood-boiling rage. You know, Londo kills him. Uh, and in Sheridan's case, he was under the influence of the Keeper, and he managed to escape the Keeper's eyes for just one second and keep his old friend alive. That's my personal read on it. Um, so, anyway, uh, that's it for uh, the point of no return. I'll see you next time for the end of this amazing, uh, you know, three-episode arc. And boy, howdy, are things about to change in this show. You know, nothing's ever going to be the same again. Meantime, bye! Bye!